It's August 2020 in Montreal. You're taking a short walk in the old port, admiring the beautiful architecture of the city. You happen to hear people screaming and chanting in the distance and it catches your attention. Curious, you walk toward the sound of the roaring crowd, wondering what could be going on. It's a city after all, so you're not really surprised that something's happening. You turn the corner and you see a crowd of people gathered around an indescript statue. The statue is of a balding man, dressed in western upper-class clothes, and he's holding a scroll. The statue is positioned in the middle of a community square park kind of thing, and it's framed by an archway with a plaque on the front. He's positioned as if he's one of the heroes of the free world. As you're analyzing the statue, you suddenly see a rope swing up and wrap around the statue's neck. With a sudden tug, the statue falls from its pedestal and comes crashing down into the ground below you. The crowd cheers. Like uh, the mayor of Montreal, uh, like uh, a minister Stephen Gilbeau, uh, our minister of heritage, uh, I was deeply disappointed uh, by the vandalism that took place uh, over the weekend. Uh, I understand the impatience, the frustration of Canadians who faced systemic discrimination and racism uh, throughout their lives and their concern uh, that we act quickly on that and their impatience because I myself am impatient. We need to move forward uh, quickly and the right ways on countering systemic discrimination and our government will do just that. But we are uh, a country of laws. Uh, and we are a country that needs to respect uh, those laws, even as we seek to improve and change them. And that, those kinds of acts of vandalism are not advancing uh, the path towards greater justice and equality in this country. The path towards greater justice and equality in this country is long and winding, and it's had many twists and turns. This would usually be the place where I talk about how far we've come and how grateful I am to live in Canada, but I'm not going to do that today. Today we're going to look at the path to greater justice and equality and we're really going to break it down. Are we really on the best path or are we being told that it's the best path because the man guiding us down that path is worried that you might find out how awful of a trail guide he is. Furthermore, how awful the institution he works for is. But let's back up a little bit. We need to figure out where this path started before we begin to judge if it's the best for us. So let's take a few steps backward and take a look at what Canada looked like before it was the Canada that you know today. And then let's also take a look at how it was shaped into the country that you now know as your home. Thirty-three thousand years ago in Wales, Alaska, what you'd see when you looked out at what is today the ocean was a stretch of land that connected North America and Russia. Much of the ocean was locked up in Ice Age era glaciers that covered most of Canada, causing the sea level to be more than a hundred meters lower than it is today, exposing an entire landmass called Borinia. Canada was a frigid white glacial desert that we once believed was unsurvivable, and we thought that nobody was capable of living in such cold conditions until archaeologists did some digging. In the northern Yukon region, archaeologists' finds claim to indicate the presence of a Paleolithic hunting population during this time. 
The artifacts that were found were in redeposited sediments, but some other archaeologists claim that these artifacts were created by something more natural, like ice movement or carnivore chewing. So it's kind of contested when humans made contact with North America. But some believe that this is when the first indigenous folks began to trickle in. Some artifacts recently found in Central America date back as far as 20 to 30,000 years ago as well. If these artifacts are indeed that old, it would mean that the first Native Americans to arrive came far earlier than even the artifacts in the northern Yukon region suggest. All of this is still speculation, and scientists are either in denial or hard acceptance, but all we can do is speculate based on the evidence that we have. Since I'm no scientist, I'll stick to the official story, or at least what it is as of right now. The physical evidence that's more widely accepted are artifacts that were found in the bluefish caves in the Yukon. These artifacts were tools fashioned out of fossils of extinct animals that radiocarbon dating indicates are at least 15 to 18,000 years old. It is said that these artifacts included types similar to those from the late Paleolithic era of Northeast Asia. This perhaps suggested an expansion of the early hunters and gatherers from Asia across Berenia, the landmass that exists between Russia and Alaska. While the exact dates are hard to pinpoint, migration patterns are something that's a little bit easier to look at based on artifacts and skeletal remains found from North America all the way to the bottom tip of South America. The Shoshone Paiute people of Nevada play a big role in unlocking key information about indigenous history and the intercontinental migration of indigenous people. In a cave called the Spirit Cave in the 1940s, husband and wife archaeological teams Sidney and Georgia Wheeler found what's estimated to be the oldest human mummy in the entire world. It's estimated to be 10,600 years old. The Fallon Paiute Shoshone tribe claimed cultural affiliation with the skeleton and requested immediate repatriation of the remains under the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. The request was refused and the tribe sued the federal government. This legal battle went on for 20 years until a tribe agreed to allow genome sequencing on the DNA extracted from the mummy so that they could determine cultural affiliation. Not only did the genome sequencing prove the tribe's claims to cultural affiliation, it also showed undeniable genetic similarities to ancient remains that were DNA tested in the same way from Alaska to Patagonia. The leader of the study, S.K. Willislav, said that this study proves that the spirit cave remains found in Nevada and the remains found in Lagoa Santa, Brazil, were all genetically closer to contemporary Native Americans than any other ancient or contemporary group sequenced to date. There's only about 1 to 2,000 years between ancient indigenous remains found in Alaska and the ones that were found in the southern tip of South America, which means that indigenous folks moved at an incredibly quick pace and populated not only this continent over that time, but also South America. Up until quite recently, Eurocentric historians painted an oversimplified and lazy version of what indigenous Western life looked like pre-European contact. 
It painted indigenous people as a savage and bloodthirsty people that were not civilized. This Eurocentric take on indigenous history was taught in schools across Europe and North America. It glossed over the reality of what really happened during contact, and it also demonized and dehumanized indigenous folks in order to paint a better picture of European colonizers, but more on that later. While the indigenous people of the Western world seem to have all originated from this migration event that took place 10 to 30,000 years ago, depending on which archaeologists you talk to, the migration event that happened happened through generations of different people over the decades, much like how over time humans in European countries broke off to form various complex and rich cultures, the same could be said for indigenous people of the West. Unfortunately, Western education often portrays all indigenous people as one, but that perception is slowly changing. Indigenous people of the West lived in small communities as well as larger settlements that would resemble a modern-day city. One of these cities was located in where modern-day Illinois currently is. The city was called Cahokia. It was home to as many as 20,000 people. Cahokia's residents constructed enormous earthen mounds used as homes, burial grounds, meeting places, and ceremonial centers. In Cahokia, there were people who would cultivate corn, artists who would craft clay vessels and sculptures, and even ancient astronomers who tracked the passing of time with the help of Stonehenge-like timber circles. Later discoveries of artifacts normally only found in Labrador being discovered as far south as Maine backed up the overwhelming evidence that there were trade networks established all across North America among indigenous people. This also indicates vast travel and communication between geographically separate and culturally distinct groups. The most common form of transport in what is now known as Canada was canoes. In South America, there was an Inca road system which was constructed by hand without iron or wheeled transportation. The trade route had bridges, causeways, stairways, and crossed plains, deserts, and mountains. The route was used to move armies, connect communities, and it was also used for trade. The most astonishing thing about the road system is that it spanned 40,000 kilometers or 25,000 miles. Indigenous people developed their cultures, communities, and traditions for thousands of years. They continued to expand on their societies until around the 1400s. At this point, it was estimated there was about 50 to 60 million indigenous people inhabiting North, South, and Central America. In the Bahamas, San Salvador to be exact, in October of 1492, the indigenous people of the island, the Taino people, gathered on the shores to welcome a small party of foreign sailors that happened to include the infamous Christopher Columbus. Columbus's account of this interaction was as follows. I discovered many islands inhabited by numerous people. I took the possessions of all of them for our most fortunate king. By making a public proclamation and unfurling his standard, no one making any resistance. He continued, they are without arms something entirely unknown to them, and for which they are not adapted to, because they are timid and full of terror writing that the natives are fearful and timid and guileless and honest. Columbus declares that the land could easily be conquered by Spain, and the natives might become Christians and inclined to love the king and the queen and the princes and all the people of Spain. His intention was never to live peacefully among these people, but to conquer them. A year later, Columbus built his first town on the nearby island of Hispaniola, where there lived at least 60 to 8 million Taino people. 
This number varies wildly because things weren't well documented at the time. But by 1548, that Taino population plummeted to 500 due to diseases that these people did not acquire immunity to, like the bubonic plague, measles, smallpox, mumps, influenza, and malaria. The same fate bestowed many tribes along the coasts of the Western world, and these diseases spread quickly inland among the entire population of the indigenous people during the early colonization efforts. This event was called the Great Dying. About 90% of indigenous people in the Western world will be killed off by widespread epidemics, warfare, famine, and slavery during colonization efforts. This was about 54.5 million people. Due to such a decrease in population, massive amounts of settlements and agricultural land were left abandoned, and forest retook much of this land. The widespread abandonment actually caused the Earth's atmosphere to cool down due to how quickly and how many indigenous people were lost in this event. There were colonization efforts happening in the south of Canada before anyone made any successful attempts in the north. The first settlements in Canada were Port Royal in 1604 in what is now modern-day Nova Scotia, and Quebec City in 1608, which is still called Quebec City. Initial encounters in the early 16th century were between the Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, Passamaquoddy, Abunaki, and Innu people as they all inhabited the east coast of Canada. These first contacts included hostile incidents as some indigenous people were kidnapped and taken to France to be paraded around at court and in public on stage and also on religious occasions. Despite this, there were mutually satisfactory encounters that were taking place via trade. Algonquin people exchanged fur hides for fish, beads, mirrors, and other European goods of aesthetic or perhaps spiritual value, and this later expanded into a larger fur trade and a policy of uh, pacification emerged. Royal instruction in 1716 required peaceful relations with indigenous people in the interest of trade and missions. While this royal instruction was made, in New France there was still slavery going on unknown to the indigenous people of the East Coast. It's estimated that 4,000 people were enslaved in what is now modern-day Quebec between 1671 and 1834. Two-thirds were indigenous people, while the remainder were of African origin. This, in and of itself, reveals the integrity of early colonizers. Eventually, the British began to set up their own settlements in Canada and began to butt heads with the French. In 1749, Edward Cornwallis was appointed governor of Nova Scotia. The Mi'kmaq people felt that the British did not have it in their right to have a settlement on their land, as it was intended to be Mi'kmaq moose hunting grounds. And it was also an area of religious pilgrimage, as it was at the head of several vital waterways. In October of that same year, Cornwallis issued an order that came to be known as the Scalping Proclamation. His government would pay a bounty to anyone who killed a Mi'kmaq person, adult or child, and bid to drive them off the mainland Nova Scotia. It is not known how many people died, but several reports detail attacks on Mi'kmaq villages and mercenaries bringing dozens of scalps to claim bounties. When Cornwallis left office, he rescinded his initial scalp tax, but four years later, Governor Charles Lawrence issued another cash bounty on Mi'kmaq people. It stated the following, A reward of 30 pounds for every male Indian prisoner above the age of 16 years brought in alive or a scalp of such a male Indian. 25 pounds for every Indian woman or child brought in alive. This proclamation was never rescinded to this day and the federal government have refused to rescind it even in the face of great public opposition. While people are not worried about it being exercised, it's still seen as extremely disrespectful to have something like this written as law.
While the initial interactions with the indigenous people of Canada were complex, there's no question of a doubt that the colonizers from both France and Britain did not have the best interest of indigenous people in mind. This became blatantly obvious in what is probably the darkest chapter for indigenous people in Canadian history, Canadian Federation. On July 1st in 1867, three colonies of Canada, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick were united into one federation called the Dominion of Canada under our first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald. The Constitution of 1867 assigned exclusive responsibility for Indians to the federal government. Section 9124 of the Constitution Act in 1867 makes the federal government responsible for Indians and lands reserved for Indians. This allowed Parliament to pass laws directly in relation to Aboriginal people without their input. Shortly after the Confederation, the government passed a highly controversial Indian Act in 1867. The main goal of this act was to force indigenous people to lose their culture and become like Euro-Canadians. Amongst other things, this law denied women Indian status, introduced residential schools, created reserves, renamed individuals with European names, restricted First Nations from leaving reserves without permission of an Indian agent, aka a white person. It enforced enfranchisement on Native people who wanted to go to university, and what that basically means is it means you have to choose between your culture or an education. It reserved the right for the government to take portions of reserves back for public works. It allowed the government the right to lease out portions of reserves to white people. It forbade First Nations from political organizations. It prohibited the sale of alcohol to First Nations. It prohibited the sale of ammunition to First Nations. It barred the First Nations people from pool halls. It imposed the ban council system. It forbade people from speaking their native language. It forbade people from practicing their traditional religion. It forbade public dancing and wearing of traditional regalia. It denied First Nations people the right to vote. And it denied First Nations people a right to slaughter their own animals without permission from an Indian agent. And what that means is the farm animals that were kept on the reserve, if you needed to slaughter one because your family was hungry or because you needed some food, uh, you had to ask permission from your designated white person. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to do it. And if you did it behind their back, you would face repercussions. You're probably starting to understand now why people want to see the statue of Mr. McDonald removed from the city of Montreal. This piece of legislation is still law in this country today, albeit with a lot of revisions. But before we get into the complexities of why we should or why we shouldn't repeal this piece of legislation, let's take a look at the impact and ripple effect this piece of legislation had on Indigenous Canadians. Just three years before the Indian Act was created, the NWMP, Northwest Mounted Police, were created to advance the agenda of a newly established Dominion of Canada, which basically means that they were created to stop any opposition to the creation of a colonial state. In the book An Unauthorized History of the RCMP, authors Brown and Brown wrote the NWMP was designed to keep order in the Northwest, to control the Aboriginal and Métis populations, and to facilitate the transfer of indigenous territory to the federal government with minimal bloodshed, in theory. The NWMP, eventually renamed the RCMP, forced all indigenous Canadians onto reserves when the Indian Act was in full swing. And once indigenous people were on reserves, they were responsible with enforcing the part of the Indian Act that restricted indigenous Canadians from leaving reserves without an Indian agent. An Indian agent was essentially like a conservator in a conservatorship, as Indian people were legally wards of the state. They were responsible with overseeing band council meetings and elections, 
They made decisions regarding band members' access to relief, housing, property, or loans. They ensured children went to residential schools. They enforced bans on First Nations ceremonies, managed the estates of deceased band members, enforced the ban from butchering cattle, uh, even in times of hunger, like I was talking about earlier, and enforced the ban on selling beef, grain, hay, or timber without permission. Essentially, reserves began to resemble prisons, and the Indian agents were the wardens. Testimony from the National Inquiry into Missing and Murder Indigenous Canadian Women and Girls, published on June 3rd in 2019, highlights testimony from people who have lived through that part of the system. Randy C. said, I think about the early stories from the time when my grand said chiefs were dragged out of their homes and thrown on the ground and forced to shovel like pig shit and stuff like that, and beat, and the RCMP were just standing around every day waiting for them to even say just one word in our language so they could beat them or throw them or haul them into jail or whatever. You know, never allowed to leave the reserve, never allowed to shop at the same stores, never allowed to do anything. And that was her reality growing up for her entire life. In the report is also testimony from Métis people who suffered under the Mounties. From 1950 to 1960, Métis family in Manitoba lived on the edge of cities and settlements called shanty towns, or along government road allotments on the edge of Canadian society. These communities were established by Métis people after the Manitoba government failed to provide the lands that were guaranteed to them. Métis people who lived in these communities were considered squatters, and in a report, a witness had to say this about their communities. They said that they were destroyed by the RCMP. In fact, some Métis elders vividly recall the day their community was burned to the ground, and when people escaped, they escaped with little or nothing but their clothes on their backs. Mind you, this is just the testimony of two people that were on reserves at this time. It's undeniable that all of this is really awful, but unfortunately, one of the more devastating things that the RCMP have done was help assist the Canadian government with residential schools. The idea of residential schools was not a new idea when the government began funding it in 1883. Back as far as 1867, a small number of churches opened boarding schools for Aboriginal people. As settlements moved west, the churches continued opening up these boarding schools, and they would begin to receive small grants from the Canadian government on a per-student basis. In 1883 is when the government began fully funding these schools, and they became more involved. They created three larger schools in Western Canada during that year, and they continued to expand their system outward from there. Due to the already restrictive policies of the Indian Act, the government could easily move children from reserves to these boarding schools. But in 1920, believe it or not, the Indian Act became more restrictive and made it mandatory for every Indigenous child to attend residential school, and illegal for them to attend any other educational institution. Some members of the force had the job of apprehending and returning any child to the school who escaped, and they also went around locating any children that were being hidden from the officers so they could also take them away. Children ages 4 to 16 attended these schools. Upon arrival, you would be given a number and a new name, and they would cut off all of your hair, which is something that is very sacred to Native people. And from that point on, if you spoke your Native language, you would be punished. These children did not know a lick of English or French, so on top of being pulled from their home and sent to a boarding school full of strangers, speaking their native tongue was not allowed and followed by punishment. Because these children did not understand what the nuns would be saying, they had no idea why they were being hit or reprimanded for trying to communicate, 
Remember, some of these children were as young as four years old. Food quality was low at these schools, and it was a huge departure from what indigenous children would regularly eat. They went from eating things like moose meat, blueberries, caribou seal, and other natural foods, to eating white gluey porridge, scraps of beef, and vegetables that had already begun to rot. Hunger was a huge problem for these children, even when they did eat what was provided to them. But a lot of the younger children refused to eat the food because it was so different from the diet that they were used to, and not to mention completely unhealthy. In the 1940s and the 1950s, some children were subjected to nutritional experiments that were approved by the federal government without the consent of the parents or the children. These experiments included restricting access to essential nutrients and dental care in order to assess the effects or improvements made to the diet of other students. If you've gone to school in Canada, you've probably heard about Canada's Food Guide. The same man that invented the precursor to Canada's Food Guide was the man running these experiments. And these experiments are what later influenced his work on the nutritional guide. And I have to say, like, this is really gross. And I know that I'm just talking out of my ass here, but after being taught something in school and having it hammered home to you and put in your hands as a child for so long, finding out that that was created off of the backs of your ancestors' children because they ran experiments on them? On children? 4 to 16? It just goes to show, like, some of the stuff that happened at these schools. And, like, that doesn't even scratch the surface. Abuse was the foundation for how a lot of these schools ran. The idea was that the government wanted to, quote-unquote, kill the Indian in the child so they would grow up and assimilate to the way that Canadian society worked. Children from ages 4 to 16 were subjected to physical, sexual, and verbal abuse daily and were treated as though they were not human beings. Instead of summarizing the stories of the survivors, I'm going to let some of them speak for themselves. And trigger warning, it's very emotional and very distressing to hear. O-L-E, and uh, my last name is D-A-W-S-O-N. Okay, and what school did you go to? Uh, St. Michael's Residential School at Lurt Bay. Mm -hmm. And how old were you when you first came in? I was, I think, 13, going on to 14. What was your first day like? Do you remember? It was horrible. Uh, my late sister and my late cousin and myself and some other girls from King Camillet, which is where I'm from, were up for hours. We couldn't sleep. Um, it was very traumatic for us. So tell me about an experience that kind of sticks out more in your mind than other, other things you can remember. Probably the abuse that happened there. Um, gosh, I, it's not only my own abuse. I saw the abuse of other students, and that was very compelling for me, um, to see young girls getting taken out of their dorms. You know, at odd hours, 11 uh, in the evening, midnight, to hear them whimpering and crying and then find them in the bathroom later. I didn't understand then what sexual abuse was. 
it wasn't explained to us by our parents or our elders or these people that operated the schools, but I knew there was something wrong. And I guess one of the things that stands out for me is I was constantly being punished. I was being either whipped or made to wash toilets um, because I physically attacked supervisors who beat the children, for instance, with these radiator brushes. Um, my cousin, my cousin uh, Bob Joseph, who is one of the residential school guys in BC, his wife is my cousin, and um, her and I were always getting punished because we were always trying to defend the little children. That was just inherent in us to be protective. And so um, that's one of the things I really resented about residential school was violence begat violence. So I can see the pattern of um, where sex abuse comes from also, but violence, because we felt we were protecting children, we would physically attack a supervisor. Uh, and we were being beaten up by older girls because the supervisors would say to someone from Bella Bella or whatever, here's these bad girls from King Camilla, you can do whatever you like to them, stuff like that, right? So after a period of time, getting sick of the whole thing, um, the abuse of these children who were wetting their beds and being sexually abused, and my own abuse by the uh, staff and by the other girls in the school. Uh, my late sister, uh, my cousin, and her sister and I ran away. Um, little did we realize that you can't escape an island. That's how stupid we were. Alert Bay is an island. And um, we were gone for several hours. Um, and we foolishly went to the fish docks because our, my father was a fish packer and my cousin's dad, uh, th their father was a, a fisherman, so he used to have a boat uh, which was called uh, a little gill netter. So we went down there hoping we could find someone that would take us on a boat and get us away from the residential school. You know, this was um, just within weeks of being there. So, of course, the, the, the guy who operated the school, the, he happened to be a minister by the name of Reverend John Dalton. He immediately got the RCMP to start looking for us. And there was a search for us, uh, my sister and my cousin. Uh, the, the younger ones, we made sure the older girl, my older cousin, uh, she was 15, I was 14, made sure that my sister and the other girl got away. Then her and I split up, and I was the one that the RCMP officer caught. So he took me, and um, this was probably about midnight by the time he found us, and took me to the back of Alert Bay, which is an island, and uh, sexually assaulted me. Didn't bring me back to the school till like, I think it was about 4 a.m. And the, um, the minister that operated the school was furious. He knew there was something wrong. He could see physical marks on my body when I came in. Uh, and right away he said, where did you have her? He started interrogating the officer, who was a younger officer. So um, that was very traumatic because the officer had said to me, if I said anything about this uh, assault that uh, my parents would end up in jail, I would go to jail. And I mean, when you're 14, 
you don't know anything about sex to start with, and uh, something like this happens, all you're doing is trying to escape this stupid place that you're in, uh, and for that, end up into this nightmare. So um, it was something like almost 40, 50 years before I even told my mother, I'm six, I'll be 63 in September, and I didn't tell my mother like till three or four years ago, and she wondered why. And I said, Mom, you know, all of that, it's been uh, the whole, um, the residential school has had such a hideous hold on us that for me, and I've been an alcohol drug counselor, a sex abuse counselor, but that's one unfinished piece of business. I want to do something legally with it. And so, um, yeah, that, that was a lot to happen in a short period of time. But I say it made me what I, who I am. Um. Her name is Anne Bignell. Well, I, I married a Shingus, then I married an Arno. My last name is A-R-N-A-U-L-T. Okay. And what school did you go to? I went to Dolphin Mackay Indian Residential School from 19, from when I was seven, probably 1950. Let's see, I was born in 52, 59 to 1967, 66 or 67. Okay, what was the name of the school again? Dauphin. Dauphin. Mackay Indian Residential School. Mackay. Is that M-C-K-A-Y? M-C-K-A-Y. K-A-Y. Okay. Okay, and how old were you when you started? I think I was seven. Seven? I did grade one here at the Paul Indian Day School, and then I went to Dauphin and did a... I was there till I was, um, I passed grade nine. I was, uh, I was an honor student, exempted from exams. So I came home and uh, started grade 10 in Nepal at MBCI here in 1967, I think it was. Okay. Uh, do you remember what life was like before you went to school? Before I went to school, I was a really happy little girl. I, I, I remember um, being a tease and always teasing and laughing and chasing after butterflies and people and dogs and, you know, just being a happy little girl. And me and my cousin Norma, uh, she was the only cousin that I had that was close to my age. So me and Norma uh, became really, really good friends. Besides being first cousins, we became best friends. Did you have brothers and sisters as well? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I have. Um, there was nine of us at one time. There were six of us left. And uh, my oldest, um, I'm third generation residential school, I have to say. My grandfather, the late Chief Cornelius Bignell, was, um, he went to an industrial, industrial school. They called them industrial schools then. And, um, so Grandpa went, and then his children went to uh, Elkhorn, and then we went to Dauphin. Some of them went to PA, and... What was the question? That's okay. Just if you had siblings, did they ever talk about it? Did your grandparents or parents ever talk about their experiences? Never. Not even my mom. My mom says I don't talk about it. Yeah, it's... What about your first day of school? Do you remember that? My first day, I, I um, remember getting off the bus and uh, 
I remember leaving here. I remember leaving here and all lining up at the Indian at the Indian agent's office, and because we weren't allowed off the reserve yet, right? That didn't happen until 1961. But we weren't allowed off the reserve, so um, we uh, we were all taken across the river, and we were lined up outside the Indian agent's office. And remember the little white picket fence, and you know the sterile environment of the Indian agent's home, and you know all of that, and I'll never forget it. And then traveling to Dauphin and being, uh, my first day getting off the bus, there was, uh, you know, I could see how institutional, you know, everything was, this massive, massive four-story building. And, you know, there was already people there, people that had gone there before me, and, but when our bus pulled up, uh, uh, I don't know, I think some people from Nepal were there. I think they might have tried to make us come pro. I don't know, I don't have any recollection of that, that other than seeing what that, um, how big the institution was. And then I remember crying constantly. I don't think I, I, the bed rail, the bed rails back then, you know, little tiny army cots and the bed rails were so, they were thin, but my hands were small. I, my, I hung on to both of them. <laughs> it wouldn't leave. <laughs> I wouldn't leave that bed. I didn't want to go anywhere for all that for about a month until I just about starved to death. It was just, they couldn't pull me off the bed to go and eat or do anything. And I hated that place. From that day, I ran away from boarding school. I stole the minister's car to get away from there. I hated the food. I hated starving. I hate that's the worst part, you know, besides the second worst thing of being there was not having your family, not having a, anybody to hug you and tell you they loved you. You know, you come from a loving family to a sterile environment. And and the food, the food, you know, eating macaroni every day and they'd put maybe one or two tomatoes in there to feed four or 500 kids. You know, we had to, we learned how to steal. We didn't know how to steal before, but the government taught us how to steal. To, to eat, they taught us how to lie, they taught us how to steal, and they taught us how to be bad people. Things that I have to pray for forgiveness now because I did that as a child to be. To be a part of life, I guess. I don't know. To survive, I don't know. But I did. I stole. I stole from people to, to be full, to have food in my stomach. It's not who I am. That's what they turned us into me. Now the jails are full of our people because the government taught us how to do all this stuff. <sighs> you know, there was one lady there by the name of Miss Rasmussen. Miss Rasmussen was a Laplander. She came from over the ocean. I don't know if she was first-generation Canadian or, you know, an immigrant. I have a feeling she was an immigrant. It was shortly after the war that, you know, we had a lot of people coming into Canada and 
we knew she was a Laplander. She let us knew, she let us know that. My sister, my baby sister Edna. They made cabbage soup. Who the hell eats cabbage soup when you're a little kid? Most vegetables, most kids will not eat vegetables. They force vegetables down our throat. And my sister Edna, she, she puked up that bowl of cabbage soup into her bowl. And Miss Rasmussen, he made it eat her, made her eat it twice. Did you believe that? Like, how ignorant can some people be? Tortured little people like that. My sister is not normal today. You know, we suffered and we are not normal today because of what happened back then. I'm not normal. I suffer. I suffer on a daily basis because of how we were raised and the things that happened to us and the dysfunctions we carry to this very day. Try to be normal. I went to school. I went to social work, you know. I tried to finish two four-year degree programs in two years. I ended up getting sick, you know. We have a, such an intelligent race of people that speak two, three, and four languages, eh? I speak two myself, okay? English and Cree, and I have a bit of French, thanks to my upgrading, eh? You know, that's what I, that's what I have. But then there's also Plains Cree that I'm familiar with and can speak, eh? You go to university and the majority of professors will tell you, anybody that speaks a single language and in university is intelligent. Anybody that goes to university and speaks two languages and three languages is super intelligent, they're brainy, they're smart, eh? You know, our people are there and we are still considered dumb, stupid, and ignorant, you know? We are not that. We are not that kind of people that, you know, the way society projects us to be. My grandfather spoke six languages. He interacted with native people from across this country. My grandfather, you know, an industrial person, an industrial school educated Indian. You know, that bad, along with Mr. Loft, they formed the very first Indian organization in this country to pull our people together, you know, to start talking about who we are as a nation. And my grandfather started that with Mr. Loft way back after World War I, you know, and we're still trying to gather as a people to try and, you know, make sense of where we're at in life. And it's impossible, right? Because we are projected, you know, as a lost race, a people that have nothing. Well, it's not true. This is how far we've come in life. But when Miss Rasmussen did that to my sister, to my baby sister, me and my sister don't even get along now, you know, because I couldn't come home for 43 years. The government did that to me, you know, where these are my people and I just come home to them seven years ago. You know, now I'm having a hard time fitting here. Where do I belong? Who do I, who am I? That's what I ask myself on a daily basis. You know, what do I do with my life? Where do I fit in? Where do I belong? You know, what the hell is that where I'm at now? You know, had we eat, been eating our foods all along? Would, you know, one out of four Canadian Indians have cancer? One in four, you know? And what's the Canadian government gonna do about that? Or is it one in six? I'm not too sure of my stats, but it's pretty damn high anyway. And every single one of us First Nations people, we all have a lumber company right sitting next to our reserve. Every single First Nation country or community across this country, they all have, you know, the lumber mill. Promise of jobs and good health and bullshit that happens after that.
1975, I went to a residential school in Moscow in 1941 to 1949. And I had a very, very rough life. I was mistreated in every way. As a young girl, she was seven year old. She was pregnant. And what they did, she had her baby. They took the baby, wrapped it up in a nice pink outfit, took it downstairs. I was in the kitchen with the nun for cooking supper. They took the baby into the, uh, what do you call that, where they make a fire and all that to heat up the school furnace room. They threw that little baby in there and burnt it alive. All you could hear was, that was it. And you could smell the, the, you know, the flesh cooking. Uh-uh. It's a big mistake when people say we were treated good. No way. There's a lot of things that happen in, in those boarding schools. The government began phasing out forced residential schools and education in the 1950s and the 1960s when the public began to learn the impact it was having on families and children. The government decided at this time that it would be better to transfer Aboriginal students into public school for education than to leave them in residential schools. It took a while, too long, but they finally closed all residential schools by 1996. The transition to provincial services led to a 1951 amendment that allowed provinces to provide services to indigenous people. Child care was one of those areas. In 1951, 29 native children were in BC's provincial foster care system. By 1964, that number was 1,466. Indigenous children originally made up 1% of BC's provincial care system when the amendment was first passed, and by 1964, Indigenous children made up 34% of PC's provincial foster care system. In the 60s, the child welfare system did not require or expect social workers to be trained in anything specific to Indigenous communities. A lot of the social workers were unfamiliar with the history of the communities that they entered, and they believed proper care was only what they saw in middle-class Euro-Canadian homes. When they saw the state as some of the reserves or the diet that some of these families had, which consisted of wild game, fish, and berries, as I said earlier, they assumed that the families were not providing proper care for the children. When they made this decision, they removed children from their homes, oftentimes with little or no warning and absolutely no consent. It wasn't until 1989 that the Child, Family, and Community Services Act required social workers to notify band council members if Indigenous children were being removed from the community. Indigenous children that were removed from the community were moved into white families, and those families oftentimes denied their cultural heritage and often told them that they were French or Italian. At the time, government policy required consent from both the child and the parent to open birth records. Many of these children grew up to suspect their heritage, but were unable to confirm it. It's estimated that 20,000 Indigenous children were taken from their families and put into the foster care system during part of what people now call the 60s scoop. And there's still a disproportionate amount of Indigenous children in the foster care system today. A people with a beautiful past, full of rich history and culture, were, and still are, legislated into silence, shame, and pain. The effect this cultural genocide has left on indigenous people is unmeasurable. 
The systematic racism that built Canada still has itself deeply interwoven within the roots of our country and is something that is going to take a very long time to untangle. And we only closed the last residential school in 1996, and we still face many other problems to this day created by the government, but more on that later. The argument that people like to throw at Indigenous people is that other people also face pain, hard upbringings, and trauma too that they are able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, so to speak, so why not indigenous people? The difference is that the pain and suffering done onto native people is systematic. Therefore, it's touched most of the people in the community. We use the word systematic racism a lot, but I feel like some people really haven't learned the true definition of it based on the arguments that people bring to the table. Systematic racism is a type of racism embedded into laws and regulation, and it always leads to discrimination in criminal justice, employment, housing, healthcare, political power, and education, among other things. Sound familiar? Taking away people's rights and abusing them in the way that we were abused leads to trauma, and that manifests down the line in ugly ways. When children are taken from their parents and abused or raised in severely unhealthy environments, that also creates trauma, and it also manifests itself in ugly ways. What the government of Canada and the churches took away from us left many of us lost with a need for, you know, good mental health care, and we were unable to move forward. It created rifts between children and parents because it was awkward, embarrassing, and really hard to talk about what was going on, and people feel an enormous amount of shame speaking about their experiences at these schools. The effects that extreme systematic oppression left on indigenous people can be physically seen with your own eyes throughout all of Canada. Over 50% of foster children in Canada are indigenous, and indigenous people only make up 5% of Canada's entire population. The reason for this is families' exposures to residential school and a family's exposure to human rights abuses that happened down the line. Brittany Barker, somebody studying at UBC who was studying the impact that residential schools and the human rights abuses Native people were subjected to, said to CBC News in an interview, if you look at the number one reason that Indigenous youth are taken into the child welfare system, it's for charges of neglect, and if you break down that neglect, it's parental substance abuse, it's exposure to intimate partner violence, it's housing instability, it's food insecurity, it's poverty. A lot of it is markers of poverty, and that's caused by the remnants of the trauma of residential schools. While there are indeed survivors that went on to care for their children and raise great families, there is a disproportionate amount of us whose trauma have affected their families and families down the line even further. And furthermore, the foster care system has been known to leave a lot of children with trauma, so that ripple effect still continues on to this day. Homelessness amongst Indigenous people can be traced back to the history of systematic racism and discrimination. Due to the extreme abuse that took place in the past and the cultural trauma that later developed and rippled out, the same sort of family dysfunction, substance abuse, health issues, and addictions can find their way into Indigenous homes much easier. These sorts of things are some of the leading causes of homelessness. Someone not aware of the history may just see homeless indigenous people as lazy drug addicts or drunks, but in reality, they're people who have been disenfranchised from the moment they were brought into this world due to the conditions that the government created and have dragged their feet on fully fixing. One third of all Canadian prisoners are indigenous people, and indigenous folks, again, only make up 5% of Canada's entire population. 
On top of the historical trauma that plagues the indigenous community, the RCMP is an organization that was built to oppress indigenous people from the jump, and it's still true today. An indigenous person is 10 times more likely to be shot and killed by a police officer than a white person. Indigenous people in prison facilities are also more likely to be sent to maximum security facilities and are disproportionately the recipients of harm and are more likely to be placed in solitary confinement. Bad infrastructure, no clean water, houses falling apart, overpopulation, and poor community resources create joblessness and the inability to get jobs. The amount of drugs being moved in a community is fueled by joblessness and the inability to get jobs. Drugs being in a community fuels addictions, crime, violence in the home, homelessness, and incarceration. So if the problem is bad infrastructure, you're probably asking yourself why Indigenous people are not investing in reserves and fixing them themselves. Well, here's the catch-22. In 2021, the Indian Act still exists as law in the country of Canada, albeit with many revisions. Political leaders and candidates have pushed for this act to be repealed completely, and after listing all of the above, you're probably wondering why Indigenous Canadians are not in the streets protesting this horrible piece of legislation. While the history of the Indian Act is horrible, it serves as a legislative tool that Indigenous people can use to hold the federal government accountable for things that they are legally responsible to provide. These protections include things like tax exemptions for properties on reserves and protection of reserved lands from seizure. In our constitution, there's a line that says Indians and lands reserved for Indians are under exclusive federal jurisdiction, making the government responsible for providing programs and services that most communities in Canada receive from provincial and municipal levels of government. These generally include education, health, and social services, roads, housing, water, and waste management. Essentially, these two laws are the legal framework that reserves are built upon. While some reserves are better off, those in remote locations rely on these laws to provide what they can to the residents. The federal government has tried time and time again to abolish the Indian Act. Doing this would leave indigenous reserve land under provincial jurisdiction and vulnerable to each provincial government's thirst for development. A fine example of this was the Oka crisis in the 90s between the Mohawk protesters, the Quebec police, the RCMP, and the Canadian Army. It took place on the north shore of Montreal in a community called Kenesatake near the town of Oka. The crisis was sparked by the proposed government expansion of a golf course and the development of townhouses on Mohawk land that is ancestral burial grounds. The golf course expansion was cancelled. However, the land was purchased by the federal government at a later date and was never established as reserve land. There has since been no organized transfer of the land to the Mohawks of Kenesatake, so if reserve land is not protected by law and what happens to reserve land is up to the provincial governments, you know, a lot of that land will be taken over time for development swiftly as Canada gets bigger and as communities expand. In 1969, Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father, introduced something called the White Paper for the purpose of abolishing the Indian Act and eliminating treaties. This was introduced to eliminate Indigenous rights, as it was when Harper's government pushed for it. In both cases, there was no promise of constitutional legislation that would protect First Nations people outside of the Indian Act once it was abolished. 
the Supreme Court of Canada continues to chip away at Indigenous and treaty rights through decisions such as the R versus Sparrow case, which resulted in what's known as today as the Sparrow Test, which determines whether Indigenous right is existing, and if so, if the government is justified on infringing upon it. There's also the case that is Delgamook versus British Columbia, which makes it more difficult for Indigenous people to claim ownership of ancestral land. So, you know, cases keep going to the Supreme Court and things just keep getting chipped away at. And eventually one day, you know, there's not going to be protections and treaties there in place to protect Indigenous people. Downtown Montreal stands a giant statue of John McDonald, the man who legislatively got the ball rolling on something that would grow so large it would crush people for generations to come. Knowing how many people this man affected and how much blood is on his hands, how many futures he single-handedly fucked over with his oppressive policies, are you really surprised that indigenous people do not want a giant statue of him towering over us as we navigate the city, which, mind you, was once originally our land. Reconciliation efforts are constantly ongoing. Something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission finished their report on residential schools in 2015. A TRC, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, is something that's pretty common for countries around the world after a genocide has taken place in their country to research and understand the impact it has really left on their people. Our TRC provided the Government of Canada a list of 98 calls to action in 2015. These calls to action are basically a plan crafted by Indigenous people to help heal generational trauma that the residential school caused. These calls to action have various topics that include but aren't limited to child welfare, education, language and culture, health, justice, and reconciliation. The specific calls to action are a roadmap for the government to address the problems in the indigenous communities that they created. In Justin Trudeau's speech after the statue was torn down of John McDonald, which you heard in the beginning of the podcast, he said that he was incredibly disappointed and that this was not the path to greater justice and equality. Only five of the 98 calls to action presented by the TRC have been met since he took office in 2015. Five. While Trudeau has been in office, the Canadian government has been in ongoing court battles with residential school survivors for their silence. Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs spent $58 million in 2020 alone on legal fees. The CIRNA had 366 active cases and 764 open, but essentially dormant, in 2019 amounting to 6.6 contingent legal liabilities and overall with land claims and other special claims factored in that's 22.4 billion dollars in legal liabilities the justice department also revealed this year that it spent 3.2 million on legal fees fighting the survivors of saint anne's residential school since 2013 and that's only one court case alone so you know Justin Trudeau can talk about the path to greater justice and equality, and he can talk about it as much as he wants, but he's not following it. Five out of 98 calls to action. All of this millions and millions of dollars being spent on court cases to fight for the silence of residential school survivors, not for their betterment, 
for their silence. And while I don't agree with, you know, tearing down statues and, and, and destroying property, like, I don't think that's fundamentally going to change the problems that we have here in Canada. But if you're going to get up and give a speech about greater justice and equality, and you're going to send out a Facebook post every time that the bodies of children ages 4 to 16 are found in, in mass grave sites on the, on the grounds of residential schools. And if you're going to make it part of your platform to help Indigenous people, actually do it. Don't use it as like social capital. Don't use it as a way to, to get votes. Do the work and stop talking out of your ass. So I guess the question is, how do we move forward and what can everyday Canadians do with all this information? Well, 40% of Canadians say they did not learn about residential schools in school. And for those that did, 1 in 10 students had residential schools framed in a positive light in school. I can bet my ass that that 40% of Canadians aren't aware of the Indian Act and aren't aware of the history of reserves or of the RCMP. Education and spreading awareness is key. There's strength in numbers, and currently numbers seem to be growing. One of the best things you can do is to start an open conversation with someone who potentially doesn't know about this stuff, and you can educate them on what you know and encourage them to find the resources or do further learning. And I understand how it can be a hard conversation. I mean, it's, it's a history that's not yours, and you're speaking on behalf of another people, but, you know... If you fuck that information up, or if you say the wrong thing, or if you get a piece of it wrong, eventually someone will correct you, and eventually someone will correct the person that you're telling who might tell somebody else, and, you know, momentum is what's most important here, and getting people aware, and getting people outraged. The goal here is to put pressure on all sides of the Canadian government to take action on these issues and to remind them that the people of Canada are an educated people who are aware of what's going on. And we must tell them loud and clear that we demand action. Photo ops and empty promises are not good enough any longer. Actions speak louder than words, and currently the government is not taking any action. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast if you've made it all the way through. Thank you for taking a moment to listen to the history and, and the culture and all of the stuff that I myself just went on a huge two-week journey to sort of learn. And it's it's been very difficult for me to learn about this stuff because, you know, I didn't know. And I, I feel like I should have known um, the gravity of it and, and how bad things actually were. I, I don't have words to express my grief that I experienced while researching all this stuff or my anger at the government for not taking action and for continually just pretending to. So thank you so much for listening. And from the bottom of my heart, I really appreciate it. This is, this is a very important episode for me. And if you did indeed make it to the end, you have all of my gratitude.